red. Imagine her just woo, whipping around. And she said, Trevor, you can borrow my Mazda Miata convertible when I'm gone. Now, that says a lot about her, if you know me. So, uh, and then afterwards, she even let me borrow her Cavalier when she went to Japan. So Amanda is a woman of intercession, prayer, missions. She, she's been in Japan ministering there. She has a heart uh, to see people loved. She's incredible. She, even now, she's, she's going down to U of T on, on Saturdays to spend time with, uh, to brush up on her Japanese. She just has a heart. And wherever she, um, you know when we talk about kingdom people? Like church is more than just this meeting on Sunday morning. It's like every day. That's Amanda. Like, you know, she prays at her school, weekends, whatever it is. She's just doing, like, Jesus' life. Amen? Amen. So we're blessed to have her this morning. Give a, round, a warm round of applause. Morning. So people uh, become Christians all different ways. And my friend Jen has such a cool testimony. She became a Christian through a dream. Uh, she grew up in a home where um, her father was sort of the leader of um, a small cult. <laughs> and uh, she had this dream one night where she was sitting on the side of a road and she knew that there was so much wrong with the world and that she couldn't help it, that there were wars going on, that there were children dying of hunger, and she could not do anything to help. And she was sitting there crying on the side of the road in her dream because there was no hope for the world. And as she was sitting there, this limo comes up and stops beside her, and the door opens, and Jesus is sitting in the back of the limo. And he says to her, come on in. So she gets in the limo with Jesus. And as she sits beside him, she knows that he is the answer to the world's problems, that he can fix the hunger, that he can fix the wars, that he is the answer. And she woke up a Christian. And that's how she became a Christian. It's just so cool. You know, this isn't, like, I hear about it a lot, about how it's happening with Muslims all over the world. But this is my friend Jen from Brampton. You know, it does happen here. And my uncle, Al, um, he is a very logical, methodical thinker. He has a photographic memory. If you want to know where any town or city is, you can just ask him, and he can tell you how to get there, because he's seen the map, and he can tell you. And he works at the nuclear power plant, a really smart guy. And he became a Christian because our family, uh, when I was probably a teenager, we went to uh, these talks given by Christian scientists. And they spoke about uh, creation, they spoke about dinosaurs, they spoke about um, science and God. And at the end of that week, he became a Christian because they showed him God. That was always his thing, show me God. And so these scientists showed him God how he understands. And that's just so cool how people become Christians all in different ways. Uh, and today um, I'm going to be speaking about uh, one of the, we're, we're going through our statement of faith. And so we'll do the first slide there, guys. Um, and so the part that I'm going to be speaking on is we believe that the Bible is God's word to the world, speaking to us with authority and without error. So this is what we believe. Um, and it's taken from 2 Timothy verse three, uh, chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, um, I spoke before about evangelism and talked about a whole bunch of different tools that uh, we can use to share the gospel. And I spoke about how we need to find our own style of sharing the gospel and who are we and how will we share and to be ready. And today I want to give another tool, how to be ready. So uh, the next slide, guys. 
So I just want to talk a little bit about the first part, and I want to focus on the Bible is without error. But the first part I want to talk about is the Bible being God's word. Um, and you know, it's evidenced, like people say, you know, how can we say that the Bible is God's word? You know, it's just written a long, long time ago, and you know, really, it's kind of boring, some parts of it, and how can you say it's God's word? But you know, God gives evidence for his word. It's in the miracles. You know, there are miracles recorded in the Bible, and in the New Testament, when the miracles happened, Jesus actually said, this is proof that I am the Christ, that I am the Messiah. And those miracles are still happening today, right? Uh, Trev spoke about Cavion's back being healed, and my knees were healed. Um, I used to have bad knees, and every time they prayed for healing, I would stand up and get prayer for my knees. And then one day, I noticed that my knees didn't hurt anymore. I thought, wow, I wondered when they were healed. I wonder which time I stood up they were healed because I didn't actually notice then. <laughs> you know, he, he gives us evidence that the Bible is his word through miracles. And then also he gives us evidence that the Bible is his word through changed lives. And you know, I think this is the one that brings so many people to Christ because their wife is changed, their brother is changed, their daughter is changed, and they know that person. They know them and they're changed. When I was in Japan, we had a young adults group that met on Saturday nights and um, people were always bringing um, people who didn't know the Lord yet to this group. And this one girl, I remember her face was so sullen. She was just, she always looked kind of sad and angry at the same time, all the time. And I really wondered, why is she coming to our group? <laughs> she does not look like she's having fun. She does not look like she likes what we're saying. You know, why, like, why does she keep coming back every week? But she did, and after about a month, she became a Christian, and her face changed. Like, I only knew her for a month, and she was so happy all the time. All the time she was happy, and she came in, like, beaming happiness, you know? Her life, like, even just from looking at her face, you could see her life was changed. And soon after she became a Christian, I was giving a message on being baptized. And at the end, she said, you know, there's a bathtub upstairs. Why don't we just go up right now and I can be baptized? <laughs> I mean, she was baptized a couple of months later in a, in a wading pool where you pretty much had to lie down flat if you wanted to be completely immersed. <laughs> she was radiating happiness. To this day, she is so happy. You know, God shows us, gives us evidence you know, of it, the word, the Bible being his word through miracles and through changed lives. And also, I love that um, the Bible is God's word to the world. You know, in John 3.16, that we know so well, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And the thing I really love about that verse is that it's God's word to the world, not to people, but to the world, that God loves us and he loves his creation. The Bible says that the creation waits and groans for the return of Jesus. You know, his, it, it's, it says that um, trees clap and dance and mountains move and, you know, creation's waiting for Jesus to come back and the Bible is his word to the world too, take heart. You know, and how much more so to us? If he's speaking to the rocks, I'm coming back, be glad, rocks. How much more is he speaking to us? You know, through his word, I'm coming back, be glad. You know, rejoice, rejoice. Like, I love how God loves. You know, he loves us, he loves his creation, and he gives us his word to show that. And the next slide. So God's word speaks to us with authority. I'm going to speak a bit more about this later. But authority, um, when you have authority, somebody in authority or something in authority, it gives direction. He gives direction. It helps you make decisions because you know the direction that's been given. You know, for uh, we who believe, we go to the Bible to see how to live our life. You know, when we're making decisions, that's where we go first. You know, and... I love also that authority offers you protection. You know, we are under Ramesh and Elsie's authority. They offer us protection. And they are under the authority of Steve and Sandra, and they are protected. And we 
are protected by the authority of the Bible. God gives us so many directions, and so many of them are for our protection. You know, and I think it's just so cool that I have God looking out for me and protecting me. And um, I remember one time God was speaking to my heart, and he was saying, Amanda, you know, I feel really bad for those people who treat you badly. Because you're my kid, and I protect my kids, I look out for my kids, and that's just a bad choice on their part, you know, to treat you badly. It's a really bad choice, I want you to know. And so now sometimes when people treat me badly, I think, oh, that's a really bad choice. <laughs> that's a bad, God says that's a bad choice. I don't know about you, but like... <laughs> yeah. And I love, too, about how God's Word speaks to us. And I know you guys have had this, where you're reading something and it pops out at you. You know, where God's really speaking directly to your heart. You know, he speaks in the word of God that's there always we can read. You know, that says, love your neighbor, that says, um, give to God your tithes and offerings, like Vivian told us. But I love, too, when you're reading and it pops out. And just recently, I was reading about um, King David when his army told him it was time to retire. So King David, he went into um, war and uh, he uh, was older and was actually losing the battle against the man he was fighting against. And his cousin, Ashael, comes to his rescue and saves him. And at the, when it's all over, the, Ashael says to him, you're retired. <laughs> you're, you're not going to war anymore. You're retired. And uh, he, he says, okay, I agree. And what, I, what happens next, it says David retires. It doesn't say he retires. It says, you know, he stopped going to war. And then... Right next, right under that, it lists four giants that his army killed in the next battle. And I thought, how cool is that, that David starts his career giant slaying. That was his first act in battle, was to kill a giant. And when he retires, his legacy is that his army is still killing giants. And that just popped out to me. I'm like, wow. I want that to be my legacy that, you know, my people that I'm training kill giants. Like, that's so cool. <laughs> um, also, I really love Psalm 150, verse 4. Praise him with tambourine and dancing. Praise him with strings and flute. Because I don't have a tambourine, but I have a guitar and a flute, and I love to dance. <laughs> so maybe you have your own verses that just pop out to you, you know, or your verses that you love where God really speaks to you. Yeah. And the next slide. What I want to spend most of my time on, though, is that the Bible is without error. We believe that the Bible is without error. Um, so 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have but do this with gentleness and respect. Yeah, so I think we're gonna go on to the next slide, guys. Um, when I was in a university, and even now, I love, love, love reading books that talk about the proofs you can have for the Bible, the logical proofs, the scientific proofs, the historical proofs, the archaeological proofs. I really love that stuff. I love reading. I love discussing and debating. And um, I've had many, many conversations with people who, you know, say, you know, there's no proof for the Bible or there's no other, um, there's no other books that talk about Jesus, that sort of thing. In fact, uh, when I was in university, God brought back to me this memory of um, a grade four teacher that I had, and maybe you heard me tell this story before. And when I, I remembered, when I was in grade four, he said the reason he didn't believe in Jesus or the Bible was because only the Bible spoke about Jesus, no other books did. And so in university, I knew this wasn't true. I knew that there were other ancient books that talked about Jesus. And so I really felt God was saying to write this teacher a letter. But he, he was retired, and I didn't know how to get in touch with him. But I knew that he had written a book, like a kid's story. Um, and so I looked for it in the public library, but it wasn't there. And so I knew that my elementary school in the library, we had a copy of his book. Mr. Williams, you remember? Yeah, it was Mr. Williams, yeah. <laughs> Kathy and I went to the same elementary school. <laughs> so so I, I was going to go 
um, it was in the summer, and like hope the caretaker was there and explained to the caretaker what I wanted. Maybe I could write the publishers and they would pass on. That was the only thing I could think of. So I was gonna go one day, but I was a little late, so I went the next day, and when I got to the school, the door was open. I didn't have to ring the doorbell. And I opened the door, and I walked in, and from the staff room, I heard uh, voices coming. And so I walked into the staff room, and there was Mr. Williams speaking to the caretaker. I said, oh, Mr. Williams, I have a letter for you. <laughs> <laughs> and so we talked for maybe half an hour about the different proofs um, of the Bible that there were, and I gave him the letter, and then we corresponded back and forth another few times about that. So I really love, I love, love this stuff. This is how my uncle became a Christian. You know, this is, this is so cool. I have a friend um, who's Muslim. We've been friends since we were eight, and um, we decided one summer that I would read the Quran and she would read the New Testament. And so I didn't only read the Quran, I also read books on witnessing to Muslims <laughs> that summer. <laughs> and, uh, and so I think she made it through Matthew, and I made it through the Quran. And so we talked back and forth about the differences between the Quran and Matthew, because that's what she'd read, and um, what that meant in our faith. And uh, she's not a Christian yet, but I've been praying for her since she was eight, so I believe that she will one day become a Christian, you know? So uh, what's on the uh, screen right there are my favorite um, tools that I use when I talk about this sort of thing. So More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell is a very small, easy to read book. It's quite old now, but it really is my favorite of all the books because it's so easy to read. Anyone can read it. And I think he makes a really good case for people logically, scientifically, archeologically, historically. Um, also, The Case for Christ by Leif Strobel is more recent, although it's still a little bit old now. And he, go, he was a lawyer, and he goes into more detail than Josh McDowell does. And he talks about things. I think his book is more suitable for um, sort of university student people who um, really like the deep thinking type thing, whereas Josh McDowell's book is sort of for anyone. That's my personal opinion. And then Ravi Zacharias is um, the current a person who really is the four leader in this sort of thing right now, and you can find him all over YouTube. YouTube, <laughs> um, that rzim.org is his website, and also I like the website bethinking.org. It has lots of podcasts, lots of articles. But what I find is when you're talking like this, there's different people who want to talk about the proof for the Bible. Can you prove it? You know, can you prove it? There's sort of two categories. The first category is people who are looking to justify their lifestyle. They're not really looking for the truth. They're looking to win an argument with you so they can continue living how they're living and not feel bad. In that case, I find it's really a waste of breath um, discussing with them. And if I, if I am speaking with someone who asks questions, usually then I tell them, you know, here's some books you can read, go ahead. You know? But then sometimes you get the people who are really searching. Yeah. And the way, you, the way I find I can tell people who are really searching is that they've looked into a lot of different things. They'll say, oh, I looked into the Quran, I looked into Buddhism, you know, meditation, yoga, you know, I've looked into Christianity. And they have questions like, you know, um, what is our purpose in life? And... Um, why am I here? And, you know, how can you really believe the virgin birth happened? You know, it's so exciting when people start asking these questions. And here's where, you remember the verse said, give your answer with, answer with gentleness and respect. Because I find these people get very into it and excited. And because they're really searching, they really want to know. And sometimes they really like argue and, you know, and you give your answer. But when you give it with gentleness and respect, even when they're angry or very animated, they come back the next day and they say, you know, I thought about what you said. You know, I, that's what happened. They, I thought about what you said. And because you said it with gentleness and respect, they come back, you know. So they're so, it's so fun, so fun talking with people like that, you know, just so exciting. So I'm mostly going to talk about the New Testament today and proofs for the New Testament. I'll talk a little bit about the Old Testament. The reason is when people have questions, the questions are usually about Jesus. 
did he really live? Did he really, you know, uh, was he really raised from the dead? Um, I find people don't usually ask, did King David really live? Was Bathsheba really that beautiful? You know, they don't, they don't ask that stuff. <laughs> it's about Jesus, so I'm going to focus on the New Testament. And when you're giving an answer, I want to give you this tool that I use that's easy. So I want you to be able to remember it, because when people ask, you want to have an answer, right? So this is how it goes. The Bible, the New Testament and the Old Testament, is an ancient document. And there's different ways to test if the ancient documents uh, are true, are real, really say what the people said, right? And so the three tests that, uh, there's many, many, but the three tests that I talk about at first is the bibliographical test, the internal evidence test, and the external evidence test. So we'll go to the next slide. Okay, so with ancient documents, we don't have the book of Matthew written by Matthew. You know, we don't have 1 Peter written by Peter, you know, because that was lost. Peter wrote 1 Peter, he sent it to people, they read it, you know, their three-year-old son chewed it up and spit it out, you know? Like, we don't have those documents anymore. In fact, we don't have the original of any ancient document, right? So Homer's Iliad or um, Plato's writings or Aristotle, we don't have anybody's original documents. Right? So the question then becomes, how many years is there between the time the original document was written and the copy that we have? How many years is there? Because of course, if there's like, you know, thousands of years, how can we tell we still have what was written? Right? So the shorter the time between the time it was written and the copy we have, the more likely it is that we have the actual words. Right? And the second question is, how many copies are there? Because if there's only one copy, well, if they made one mistake, then there's a mistake. But if there's lots of copies, right, then we know that uh, it's easier to see that there would be less mistakes. Okay, so, um, so the truth is, with the New Testament, the very oldest fragment of the New Testament we have. It's a little piece of paper. It's from John. It has three verses on one side, two on the other side. That little fragment of paper is about 100, it, it, it dates about from 100 to 150 AD. So if Jesus died in 33 AD and the Bible is written over the next 60, say 100 years, that means that little fragment is somewhere between 50 to 100 years after the original book of John was written. So the very oldest thing we have is about 50 to 100 years after the copy, right? However, the full copy of the Bible, of the full copy of the New Testament, they're about 100 to 300 years old. So the, the uh, New Testament was written, and the copy we have is about 100 to 300 years old. So, and we have many thousands of copies. There's 20,000 copies of the New Testament ancient writings. Um, we have over 5,000 in Greek alone. And this is just the New Testament, not the whole Bible. The whole Bible has many, many more than that, right? So this is what, this is, um, I'm gonna give an example of how this works. So let's pretend that uh, here we have Genesis 1-1, and of course it was lost, we don't have to pretend. The original, you know, Abraham writing Genesis 1-1, it's lost. And so we're gonna all pretend that we are ancient scribes copying it down. And we are all gonna make a mistake. So I'd like everyone in Genesis 1-1 to pick one word that you're going to leave out. Okay. So we've all, as our scribes, we've written down Genesis 1-1, but we have all made a mistake, right? So now we're going to pretend that we are the biblical scholars collecting all of these copies, right? So Otten, what was the first word that you had for Genesis 1-1? In. Hands up if your first word was in. If you had in, that was your first word. So if you left out the word in, you leave your hand down. If you chose to leave out the word in, hands down. And if you have the word in, when you copied it down, you have the word in, put up your hand. Yeah, so I'd say that's most of us have the word in. Okay, so we're gonna say in Genesis 1-1, the first word is in. And Ramesh, what was your second word? 
the. Hands up if your second word was the. You did not leave out the word the. Your second word was the, right? So we have almost everyone here has the. Okay, and Elsie, your third word? Oh, you didn't go that far. What was your third word? Earth. So hands up if your. No, you can only leave out one word. Yeah, you can only leave out. Beginning. Hands up if your third word was beginning. Right? So this is how they do it, right? They have 20,000 copies, and some of them may have mistakes, the copies. But because we have 20,000, we can see almost everyone has the first word in, so they're pretty sure that that first word from the original document was in, right? So when you read your Bible, at the bottom, they'll sometimes have a little asterisk, and it'll say, the Dead Sea Scrolls have a different word here, or some manuscripts leave out this verse, right? This is what they're talking about, right? They're saying that we've collected all the information and this is what we believe the author originally wrote. So we believe, you know, the author originally wrote this from all of the different versions we have, right? But if enough of them say something else, or if important ones say something else, they, they put a little asterisk at the bottom to let us know what it may be. So from all of this, the scholars say that the Bible is 99.5 to 99.6% accurate. We can be sure that we have what Matthew actually wrote. We can be sure that we have what Peter and Paul actually wrote in the Bible. What they wrote, even though we don't have the original copy, we can be sure that we know what they wrote. So I'm going to compare this to other ancient documents, right? Let's say Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad is the second most reliable ancient document after the Bible. Homer's Iliad, there are 650 copies. So not 20,000, 650 copies of Homer's Iliad. And the um, closest copy in time is 1,000 years after it was written. Yeah. So, uh, for example, uh, Tacitus was a Roman historian. He wrote in the first century. Uh, we have his first six books. There's only one copy of it. There's no other copies. One copy. It was written 650 years after he wrote. Josephus, also a Roman historian. Uh, we have nine copies of his book, The Jewish War. They were written in the 10th century. So you can see, compared to these other ancient documents, the Bible is so accurate. So if people say, we have the words of Plato, you know, we say a platonic relationship comes from Plato, right? If you think that that really is what Plato taught about, then you must also, if you're using the same tests, believe that we have what Jesus said, that we have what Matthew wrote, that we have what Peter and Paul wrote. Right? If you say that we don't have what they said, then you cannot believe pretty much the rest of history, <laughs> ancient history. Right? So this, that's the bibliographic test. Right? Okay. Next, we go on to the next test. So the next test is the internal evidence test. Okay, so now we know we have what Matthew really wrote, we have what Luke really wrote, we have what Peter really wrote. But Maybe they were deceived. Maybe they were lying. Who cares if we know what they wrote if they're lying to us? If it's all just a big lie, why should I believe, right? And uh, this is what people say, you know, like they were deceived, you know. Like it, even in the Bible it says that uh, there's a rumor that his disciples came and stole his body at night. You know, like maybe it, you know, that didn't really happen. So we want to ask, you know, um, is it just legend? Is it just legend, right? Is it, you know, they heard the story and so they wrote it down, you know, and nobody really knows. So, but if you look in Luke uh, chapter one, verse three, Luke says that the eyewitnesses told him the accounts he wrote. In fact, Luke says, I looked into it uh, very carefully. I was careful to write down what the eyewitnesses said. The same as 2 Peter 1.16, he says, I was an eyewitness to this. I'm telling you what I saw. And in 1 John 1.3, John says, I heard these things and I saw these things, right? So they're claiming, you know, they're claiming that they were eyewitnesses. It's not just a legend. You know, I heard it. I saw it. 
So then the second question is, okay, they believe it. So it's not just legend. They believe it. They saw it. Were they deceived? Yeah, were they deceived? So here's the thing about the New Testament writers. They were so confident that they weren't deceived. When they wrote, they said, you guys who don't believe know that what I'm saying is true. You know that these things happened. Right? So in Acts 22, Peter is speaking. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. You know, he's saying, listen, if I'm wrong, if I'm deceived, you can come tell me. If he didn't really work miracles, you can come and tell me because you saw it. You know, he's saying, I'm so sure I'm not deceived. And if I am, you can say so. You know, but they didn't say so. <laughs> and in Acts 26, 26, um, Paul is in chains for the faith. Pretty much Paul's in jail because he won't give the guy a bribe to get out. The guy's waiting for a bribe. Paul doesn't give it. He stays in jail. And so King Agrippa comes to hear his case. And so King Agrippa is sitting there listening, and Paul hits him with the gospel. Hey, King, listen to this. <laughs> Jesus loves you. He died for you. Come join us. And King Agrippa says, you're crazy, Paul. I'm not joining you. And uh, Paul says, for the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, you saw it. You know it. You know about this. You know I'm not crazy. You know I'm not crazy. I just like to repeat that over again sometimes. I know I'm not crazy. I know I'm not crazy. <laughs> just by the by. <laughs> right? So they weren't deceived. They said to the people, tell me if I'm deceived. You know what happened. And the people, they, you know, they didn't say, you're crazy. <laughs> well, they said you're crazy, but they know they're not. The Bible was written, the New and Old Testament was written over 1,500 years almost 40 authors, 66 books, they all point to Jesus, right? They all point to Jesus. That is a pretty big conspiracy to deceive people. That's quite a few people who are being deceived in the same way over thousands of, over, you know, a thousand and a half years. They were not deceived. So then the next question is, did they embellish? They loved Jesus. Good things happened, and so maybe they made it just a bit better than it really was because they loved him so much, you know? So the answer to that one is, you know, if, the, if Peter was going to embellish, why would he include his denial when he is telling it to people who are gonna be writing it down? Why would the authors write that in Galilee, Jesus wasn't able to heal so many people? Or that he cried from the cross, Father, where are you? You know, why would they include all the stuff about the disciples arguing about who was the greatest? I'm the king of the castle. You're the, you know, <laughs> that's, what they, that's what they wrote. You know, people who embellish don't write that stuff. At least I, I wouldn't if I was going to embellish. <laughs> and this last one for the internal evidence test. Okay, so if it wasn't a legend, it really happened. They weren't deceived and they didn't embellish. Are there contradictions? Maybe they got it wrong. You know, and this is a really big one. People use this one all the time. I have to tell you, people use this one all the time. There's contradictions in the Bible, they say. And I say, oh, really, where? And then they say, well, I've heard that there's contradictions. <laughs> when people say that to you, ask them where. Because most times they don't know. It's the rare person who's going to come up with this verse and that verse. You know, I really challenge people, know it yourself, you know? So when they say there's contradictions in the Bible, I say, okay, where? So I'm gonna give you a couple of examples of where people might say, although I doubt that many people will. And, but first I wanna tell a story. So there was this man uh, who died, and his friends were hearing these contradictory reports about how he died. You know, one friend heard that he died of a heart attack, um, and another friend heard that he died in a car accident on the way to the hospital. And they were like, well, that, you know, how did he die, actually? You know, was it a car accident or was it a heart attack? And what they found out was that actually he'd had a heart attack. And 
and uh, the ambulance was, was called, and the ambulance came and got him and was taking him to the hospital. And on the way to the hospital, the ambulance was in a car accident, and he died. So it sounded like it was contradictory, but actually it wasn't when they heard the full story. So the Bible is a lot like that. People think it's contradictory, but as time goes on and more and more is revealed, it's actually not. So, um, for example, in Matthew, um, there's a story of a centurion, a Roman soldier, who comes to Jesus and asks if um, his servant can be healed. And in oh, Luke, yeah, in Luke, it says that he sent elders to Jesus. So people are like, there is a contradiction. Did the centurion go or not? Well, nowadays, sometimes the president will give an announcement, right? And the newscaster will say, the president announced today that they're going to be cutting taxes or whatever it is. But actually, it wasn't the president that announced it. It was actually the press secretary read a speech written by speechwriters that the president saw and said, okay, sure. But nobody says, you're lying. The press secretary said that, not the president. Because we all know that the press secretary speaks for the president, right? So in the same way, the elders that he sent were speaking for him. And people in that time would have known that. You know, so they say that centurion came, but really it was the elders that he sent speaking on his behalf. You know, it's not a contradiction. It's, you have to know the full story. Also, in Mark, it says that um, as Jesus was leaving Jericho, he healed a blind beggar. But uh, then again in Luke, it says as they were approaching Jericho. So that seems like a contradiction, you know? Was it as they're approaching or was it as they're leaving? Well, our problem is today cities don't move around. But in those days they did. They were destroyed and rebuilt. So they were destroyed and rebuilt closer to the water, closer to the mountain. They were rebuilt a little bit of ways where it was easier to defend. And so as Jesus was walking out of old Jericho into new Jericho, he healed the blind beggar. Right? There's lots of ways, like, there's many times people say the Bible is contradicting itself. But this is what I find. When people actually know something, they say, well, what about this and this? It's not a major theological issue. If Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus on the way into Jericho or on the way out, praise the Lord, blind Bartimaeus was healed. <laughs> you know, like, that's not a major theological issue. You know, there are no contradictions in the Bible. There aren't, and especially over major theological issues, there are not, you know. And if people bring up one that you don't know the answer to, you can go to Ravi Zacharias's website and look it up, because they have a whole bunch of this kind of thing. So this is the internal test. So then there's one more, and we'll go to the last slide, guys. The last one is the external evidence test. So now we know that we have what people actually wrote we know that what they said was actually true, right? And now we're going to ask, is there any other proof outside the Bible that this is true? So I have to tell you, the Book of Mormon speaks about uh, things happening long times ago in America. And if you go to archaeologists and ask them, have you found any proof of the Book of Mormon? They will say no. Have you found any other texts that tell the same thing as the Book of Mormon? They will say no. There is no external proof for the Book of Mormon. Right? However, for the Bible, there is. Um, there's other ancient texts that talk about uh, Jesus. And the most famous is Josephus, who I mentioned was a Jewish Roman historian in the first century. And in his, uh, in his book, Antiquities, he talks about James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ. And he talks about how James died. So here we have not only that Jesus was called the Christ, but that he had a brother James and that James was martyred. Now, Josephus has other places where he speaks about Jesus, but those places are more contested or argued in um, the academic circles. This, however, this quote is not. Everyone agrees, yes, Josephus wrote this quote. There's also uh, a Roman historian uh, called Tacitus, um, and he wrote in about 100, and, yeah, in the first century as well. And he records that the Christ was killed by Pontius Pilate. You know, also not contested, mentions it. And then there's a man named Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyons. Irenaeus was a student of Polycarp, who was a student of John the Apostle. 
it's kind of cool, I think, that this kind of church history is written down, that we can see, oh, look, John the Apostle taught Polycarp, Polycarp taught Irenaeus, and Irenaeus writes in his book in 180 AD, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also lead on his breast, himself produced his gospel while he was living at Ephesus in Asia. That's what he learned from Polycarp, who learned it from John, and he wrote it down. And I think that's so cool that we can have that. In fact, there's over 45 non-biblical sources, ancient texts that talk about Jesus. And you can learn so much about his life, not from the Bible. And even these three guys, we learned a whole bunch, you know, like there's lots of texts. The second uh, evidence we have is archeology. span I talked about how Luke was a historian, right? And he wrote down details. You know, I am not a details person. I apologize if you got your hair done and I didn't notice, or if you changed your glasses, because I will not notice. You're gonna have to tell me, I have to tell you. Luke, on the other hand, was a details guy. He loved the details. And people used to say that Luke was not that great a historian because he made lots of mistakes, they thought. But as there's been more and more archeological digs, they found more and more texts and carvings and things written that prove that Luke knew what he was talking about. So specifically, uh, Luke talks about in Luke 3.1, he refers to Licinians being the tetrarch of Albanine. So this guy Licinians, he was in charge of this one area. But everyone knew, all the historians knew, that Licinians was actually not a tetrarch, but he was a ruler of Chalcis a half century earlier. And people are like, you know, Luke got, Luke got it wrong. This guy, he wasn't ruler of this city. He was ruler of this city. And he wasn't, you know, this time. He was, you know, half a century earlier. But then one day they did a dig and found another scrap of paper which spoke about, uh, and the scrap of paper they found was, they dated between AD 14 to 37. And it listed Licinians as the tetrarch in Albia near Damascus. It turns out there were two men who were rulers with the same really long and hard to say name. <laughs> you know, that happens. We have that now, two people with really long and hard to say names sometimes. I'm a teacher, I know. <laughs> I read on the first day of school, please forgive me if I say your name wrong. Um, <laughs> then they say, sometimes I spell it, you know. They're hard to say. So then the other thing is um, John 5.1. In John 5.1, Uh, John tells us the story about Jesus healing uh, the man at the pool of Bethesda. And he says that that pool had five porticos. I don't know what a portico is, but I'm guessing it's like a little room or something. I should have looked it up. <laughs> anyway, people, th people thought they've done lots of uh, digs in that area. They've never found it. And so people thought he was wrong about that. But then again, one day, one day, they did another dig. And they found it. They found the Pool of Bethesda. Not only did it have the porticos John talked about, it had colonnades and all this other stuff that they could say, oh yeah, that's actually true. Archaeology does prove the Bible true. And the last one I want to talk about is science. And here I'm going to talk about the Old Testament because I think those proofs are just so cool for the Bible. You know, in Job, I love the book of Job. Job is probably the oldest book, and it talks about nature quite a lot. In fact, I believe that Job mentions dinosaurs. I believe he mentions the Brontosaurus and the Tyrannosaurus Rex. And he talks about, I can show you where if you like. And uh, I, you know, he talks about stars and he talks about plants. And God talks about this stuff a lot, actually. Job listens. And uh, so uh, Job talks about the stars. Uh, and there's other places in Psalms that talks about the stars. It says, the Bible says that the stars have their course and that the morning stars sing. Well, people used to believe that stars were fixed in space, right? Not that long ago. You know, not that long ago, people believed stars were fixed in space. But we know that stars have an orbit, that they go around and around or elliptically around and around. They have their course. And they also found that stars have a frequency that they emit, a sound that they emit. And that the stars, when you put all their sounds together, sound beautiful, like an orchestra, that the morning stars, in fact, sing. And I think it's just so cool that God put that stuff in the Bible for us, that we can know that's his word. It's without error. And the next one I want to talk about is oceans. In Job 38:16, he talks about the springs of the sea. But until the 1970s, people believed that the sea was fed by rivers. And uh, 
And so in 1970, they finally made a submarine that could go to the bottom of the ocean without exploding, or imploding, more accurately. And uh, the, they found that there were springs on the bottom of the ocean floor. The, it's not only fed by rivers, but by springs from the bottom of the ocean floor. In fact, that the ocean has springs. I just think it's so cool that God leaves this stuff for us to know, that we can use this as a tool to show people. You know, um, I don't know if you've heard this. I hear this uh, sometimes. I'm so glad you have faith, Amanda. You know, I can't have it, but I'm so glad you do. You know, what they're saying is, you know, I'm so glad that this delusion that you believe in makes you happy, but I just can't be as stupid as you to believe in this delusion, and I just can't be happy like you are, Amanda. That's what they're saying, are they not? Right? But this is not true. This is not true. And so I encourage you to have an answer ready. Really, uh, have you thought about, you know, that we actually have Jesus' words, and I can show you how? You know, so the bibliographical test shows that we actually have the words that are written. The internal evidence test shows that they weren't lying, that those things actually happened. And the external test shows that there's other things that prove that, like corroborating evidence, right? So just have an answer ready for those people. They're not ready, they're not seekers, they're not ready. But when you say, what about this? Have you thought about that? They do think about it. And you know when their son is sick, who do you think they're gonna come to to get prayer? Right, that's you. Because you've proved to them you're not exactly crazy and they know you have faith. Right? Like, what I love is that Jesus was so smart. You know, at 12, he argued with the scholars in the temple, and they sat hanging on his words, asking him questions. <laughs> 12 years old. When he was an adult, people at the end, after he argued with people or discussed with people, they were scared to ask him questions. Scared, it says to come against him and ask him questions. He'd proven himself to be so smart. You know, Christianity is an intelligent religion, an intelligent belief. And you know what I love is that Jesus hung out with, uh, he chose also smart people, right? He chose Paul, who was a Pharisee, top of his class, to write most of the New Testament. And this is what I love the most. He chose fishermen. And the fishermen, it's recorded sometimes, some of the things that they did that may be considered not so smart. And then after Jesus rises from the dead and they start preaching, people say, who are these guys? Aren't they the fishermen? How did they get so smart and speak with power and authority? Do you know that hanging out with Jesus makes you smart? <laughs> it does. If you would like to be smarter, you need to hang out with Jesus more because that's what he does. He makes you smarter. <laughs> and he wants us to use our brains. He does not want blind faith. He wants us to use our brains and to show others that this is a religion of logic, of science, of history, of archaeology. But this is the thing. Believing in Jesus does take faith. This helps people come to Jesus, but it still takes a step of faith. And this is what I learned. When you show somebody's brain that Jesus is who he says it is, it's not much longer until their heart believes it, that we use our brain to help them use their brain to get to their heart. And that's what we want, right? Faith. Should I pray? Okay. So Father, would you help us to remember just Father, you're so good because you put stuff in our brains so that you can pull it out when we need it. <laughs> so when somebody challenges us on our faith, would you pull out the things from our brains that you've put in there that we can give an answer? Lord, even in your word, it says, don't worry what you're going to say to people. I'll give you the words. And Father, we receive them. We receive the words to share with people. Thank you. Thank you for the words to share with people. And... Uh, I just want to speak to people who maybe don't know Christ yet. If you came today not having a faith in Christ, um, and you've seen today that this is actually logical, and you have decided that this is where your faith is placed, then I'm just going to pray a prayer, and you can pray it along in your hearts. So, Jesus, I see that you are who you say you are, that you are God. And I want to choose you as my God. Please forgive me 
for the things that I've done wrong. And thank you for your forgiveness. And I receive your gift, your gift of life, and your gift of hope, and your gift that you are the one who can heal the world like you showed my friend Jen in the dream. You are the answer. Thank you for that gift. And I choose to give you my life today because you are the way, the truth, and the life. You are the answer, and I choose you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks, Amanda. Um, hey, on the last and greatest day, Jesus went up to the, the temple, and uh, he said, you know, whoever believes on me out of your innermost being will flow streams of living water. Amen. And as Amanda was speaking about the springs, how many of you knew that there were springs in the ocean? I didn't know that. That's, that's incredible. And um, I, uh, it just really resonated with me that God, wherever you are, Holy Spirit wants to flow out of you. Hey, for the world. And as he's called us to the world, he wants to flow out of us. Um, and his love is for you, his love is for the world. I just wanna take a little time and maybe gather in groups of maybe two or three, and this is how we'll end today, and just pray together and say, Lord, you know, Holy Spirit, as you flow out of me, how can the world be changed? How can I hear your word? Because here's a good little th scripture. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Listen to this part. So the man of God, woman, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you want to be equipped for what God has for you to do, this, God's word is where you're going to get equipped. This is it. Amen? Every good work. It doesn't matter if you're a nurse, doctor, teacher, whatever it is. It's God's word, as Amanda was sharing with us today, that's going to equip you to do that. We can stand on God's word. So I just want, if you can just gather in groups of two or three and ask, uh, ask Holy Spirit to flow, pray for each other, minister to each other, that Holy Spirit would flow in your sphere of work, in your life, that all the works God has called you to do would be accomplished. Amen? Amen. So just uh, gather around groups two or three, minister Holy Spirit to each other, minister the word, Yes, Lord. Holy Spirit flows. Spring up within us. Spring up within us. Prepare us with your word that we may do the good works which you've called us to do. Hey, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We bless you, Lord.